Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Sage for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is May 9th, 2019, and this has been recorded at the Andrew Haskell Library in uh, Chelsea in Manhattan. Hello, Sage. Hello. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. A little tired, but excited to be here. Why are you tired? Uh, today I led my first meeting, um, well, my first training, really, of my colleagues uh, regarding transgender issues and the workplace and in dealing with um, approaching institutional too quiet. No, doing good. Okay. Um, and basically how to address some institutional change on a meaningful level. Um, this is a project that I've been working on almost a full year, maybe more than a full year. So I put a lot of heart and soul into it and that concluded about an hour ago. So I am pretty calm for what could be an emotionally jarring interview, which, you know, hey, I think we planned it pretty well. Amazing. Uh, are you looking to avoid referencing who your employer is in this interview? I haven't decided yet. I oh think my. I think I might. We'll see how it goes. Okay. I think I'll be a little vague about it, but I don't also think that matters, but we'll see. Okay. Is that okay that I don't yeah, have that decided you, yet? It's your choice. <laughs> I would ask you about that next. That, okay. But we can loop back around to it and see what happens. Okay. Um. But the context of the training today was, do you want to say a little bit about sort of your experience as a trans person in, in the institution you work in? Yeah. Um, I have not been out about my gender in the workplace until the last about three months or so. So February was when I came to work and I said, my pronouns are they and them. Please don't call me a woman. Please look at my very fancy pen. I have a they, them pronouns pen that my spouse got me. Um, and I started navigating what it means to be out. Now, previous to that, I had been out about being queer. So staff at my last branch knew that I had a same gender partner. Um, and my same gender partner, who is such a role model for me, and they are going to get very upset that I say this on, on, on whatever, um, say this on recording. They have been out at their workplace for years. Um, and I thought, why not? Why not make it both of us? So that has been a little rocky. There have been challenges before and after coming out. Um, because before, I think you can look at me and tell that I'm queer. I think I present as a butch. I don't know if butch lesbian really works, but I, I certainly do not tr traditionally present femme. Um, I've had, I work with kids and I've had a lot of kids look at me, go, are you a boy or a girl? And I usually go, I don't know. What do you think? I can't tell. And it makes me mad. Where are the crayons? You know, very simple with kids. Um, and working with kids has been really rewarding. I can't say that I've had any issues with gender discussions with children. Um, 
there have been dicier issues trying to figure out how I want to navigate this with other adults. Um, both before I felt comfortable enough to come out in the workplace and after. Although I do want to point out that I've been really pleasantly surprised at how little trauma there has been around being out at the workplace. And I realize a lot of that comes from, you know, I'm, I'm in a pretty good position of privilege. I've got a strong union backing me, all this other good stuff about New York City. Um, but that's been pretty good. How has your union support been? They don't know about the trans stuff yet. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I should send them a postcard, by the way. Um, but in other issues, they've been really great. I'm from Virginia, which is um, not a union-friendly state. And the very idea of being out in the workplace is laughable. Like, even being, you know, cisgender queer would be just, it wouldn't happen. Um, and then to come here, and the, we talked about this at the training this morning, to have um, the, the gender law that was passed for New York State, where it's illegal to discriminate against gender identity in the workplace is something I still don't think is real. It sounds really fake, um, but it's because of that. It's because of New York City being New York City that I'm able to be here and be out at work. And if I do run into an issue with harassment, um, which I did, which I can talk about in a little bit, um, I know that my job is safe and that I've pretty much got a good recourse. Um, so that's part of why I decided it was time to come out because I'm in a position where I'm safe enough that it's not going to really mess things up for my life. Um, the worst thing that has happened so far is that my mom found out without me telling her directly. And that turned out fine, but it was an interesting conversation because it was all like, your brother called and wanted to know why you're trans. And so I'm calling you to ask you, why are you, tra <laughs> why are you trans? Thanks, Facebook. Um, and that, that's honestly been the scariest fallout from all of this. Um, which is to say, you know, I'm relatively very lucky. So, yeah. I uh, happen to have read a little bit about trans activists in the 90s uh, that work for your employer in your union, being very active in the LGBT Workers Association of your union, and being active in helping to shape New York City politics around trans issues. Um, where, you know, here in New York City, we've passed a transgender civil rights bill in 2002, and uh, the, the, your union played a big role in that happening. That's really great. That's, yeah. that's stuff I don't know about. Um, one, of the big, one of the things that has changed moving from rural Virginia, I come from a place with 6,000 people in a goat field, um, to New York City is realizing how how little I was aware of the historical context I was part of just by being queer and trans. Um, I grew up, like I said, in a place that was not, not only unfriendly to it, but I did not have any visual representation of what it was like, the, of being trans being a thing. Um, and a lot of what I learned, and I'm sure this will get some laughs from some people listening, um, I learned from social justice spaces on Tumblr in the early 2010s, um, which even <laughs> which even today I realized some of what I had learned was not only problematic, but wrong. Um, someone came up after the training and we had a very amazing uh, conversation about how I had used terms like 
uh, transgender and gender nonconforming and how I've been conflating the two, right, based on what Tumblr told me in 2012, <laughs> because that was my only um, ability to access information. And then to talk with somebody who had a radically different um, understanding of how the world worked and also knew New York City better. And I'm sitting here going, I should know this. I took all my notes and I'm going to research it when I get home and um, going to do better next time. Yeah, I've got a lot of stories like that, just about New York fundamentally changing me, which I think it does for everybody. You know, if you stick here long enough, you you just New York gets into you, which I love and hate about this place. Yeah. yeah. So tell us about your growing up. I am from Appalachia, which is one of probably the most beautiful places I've been. I haven't been super, super many places, but growing up in the Appalachian Mountains is like growing up in the Garden of Eden, right? It is this riot of nature and the topography gets inside you, right? It's something I did not realize until I came to New York City about how important nature was. I um, lived in a couple places in Virginia, multiple places. And at one point um, I lived with a national forest literally outside my back door. You could hop in the car and go up the mountain. You're in the forest, okay? Um, and just to have these mountains there. I didn't realize until I came to New York City how important it was for me. Um, and a lot of that is also tied up in figuring out class stuff because I'm from like middle class, middle upper middle class, somewhere around there. So a lot of what I value now about where I come from, you know, um, music and culture and history and even the, the landscape itself, um, was really mired in this idea of who I was and who my parents were. And like, you know, like, oh, I can't like bluegrass music because we are not that socioeconomic class um, or things like that. And then coming here, not only dealing with New York City, but then realizing how strong unions have been and collective work has been in Appalachia and in that part of the world and coal miner strikes and all like it it's like unpeeling this entire layer I had no idea existed um and I'm part of some groups that's like um queer Appalachia folk on Facebook which has probably changed its name by now who knows um and just reconnecting with this idea of this just really radical place I was born in and that I in some ways embrace more now that I'm in New York City than I did before. And I go back home and I still think of it as my home. And I just see the mountains and there's just this, this automatic. Now, the downside is that I grew up in a very white, very homogenous, conservative, Christian, Republican environment um, that very much shaped who I was and the struggles that I had to deal with um, as I grew up. Um, I came out of a lot of closets to myself and to others, and it took a lot of digging that I am still processing to deal with um, 
the the many gifts that I was given from Virginia. You know, the churches that I went to, the schools that I went to, the things that I learned, the values that I internalized, the values that I tried to fight against. And that's its all like this big complicated web that I'm just really recently being able to sort of pull apart and figure out how I want to name and where I want to put things. Right. So like um, I grew up as a lot of folks do in the South, very religious. You know, we went to church every Sunday. Uh, we went to spaghetti supper on Wednesdays. I was part of a Baptist church, not the Southern Baptist cooperative. Um, no, wait, not the Southern Baptist group, just a Baptist church that was in the South. That was part of the Baptist cooperative question mark. They're different Baptist groups. So we were not quote as bad as the Southern Baptists. Um, but I certainly learned about what a woman's place was growing up. Um, I learned about all the evils of like uh, sex and affection. Um, I remember going to my friend's church because that's what you do. You went to sleep over and you go to each other's church and at school. And they, they had a, um, for, uh, forgot what the term is, a testimonial where someone stood up and testified about how Jesus worked in their life. And I remember about this, this guy, I was maybe 11, talking about how Jesus saved him from homosexuality. And that he had, had gone into this degenerative, like it was this whole spiel. Um, that's also the, the day I learned what the word dyke was. I'd never heard it before in my life. And it was my friend's mom who was joking about dykes when we were in the um, drive through to Arby's, I think. Hardy's? Hardy's or Arby's. Um, and when I think about it, a lot of the stereotypes and a lot of the hate that I got was very piecemeal because I was not exposed to people that I knew were queer because I was in very much like a dominant narrative. So like I knew dykes were bad because lesbians were bad and I just wasn't sure what a lesbian was, you know, or like I knew, but that part of your brain that you're taught not to engage with. There's a lot of weird Orwellian doublethink. And I've got another trans friend who also grew up Baptist. And we just, we just, I think we just have these conversations sometimes about how bizarre it is. And it's funny because I want to mention this early on. So I'm a very religious person now. Um, haven't always been, but I am now. And I love religion in general. I love the role that it can play. I have Christian friends who are actually really fantastic at being Christian and human. Um, but it took me a lot of unlearning. And I ultimately had to walk away from my uh, family's faith, which was Baptist and Christian in general, um, because I couldn't and I still cannot personally reconcile it. Um, that's rough so yeah I feel like I just said a lot is there a I feel like there's a direction I could be pointed in because otherwise I'm gonna <laughs> you're like that's okay it's your interview no, <laughs> you think I know here. what I'm doing I'm just here to listen um uh, you mentioned your family being middle or upper middle class yeah. and distinguished at the time from bluegrass was that your reference yeah. um what were your parents jobs um, my dad does PR and my mom was in education. 
PR for a public independent firm for, for uh, universities, for universities. universities, and still does. Um, and my mom worked in education um, and variety of things, and only recently uh, retired. My dad still works. And it's funny because I remember growing up and thinking that we were pretty fairly average. Um, I, I, I suppose a lot of people grow up thinking that they're average. Um, and then we moved by the time I was 14 to um, a small town in the mountains that was certainly more more mired in, in Appalachia's history of, of being forgotten by the rest of the country. And this is this is where I just need to get on my little soapbox, which is I Appalachia and its people and all of the things, there's a lot of shit that it's been dealt um, because of class and also because of race. And there's a lot of really complicated issues. Um, and it becomes like a joke, you know, like all the, the illiterate Trump voters in Appalachia. You know, as though you as though the white folks down in Staten Island didn't vote for Trump, as though there hasn't been a history of queer and people of color agitating and organizing in Appalachia. Um, as though West Virginia didn't just start one of the biggest strike waves of the last four decades. Right. No one. No one saw. I was waving my hands angrily. Um, <laughs> and I remember moving to this place that is still not healed from the Great Recession. You know, it, it, it was a it was a factory town and out of five factories, there's one left and it's struggling and people don't have a ton of money, you know. And we went from being what I thought was pretty middle of the road to suddenly being one of the richer town, richer folks in town, um, which was bizarre, which was really weird um, and put a lot of things in perspective and had me questioning um, just assumptions I had made earlier about the world, about how things work. Um, yeah, I think I kind of ran off on a tangent there. You were asking me, what were you asking me? <laughs> tangents are what it's all about. Tangents are what it's all about. Okay, I'm just thinking of the poor person who has to come by and, and, and type up all my, all my things. That's okay. Um, what counties did you grow up in? I, so I was born uh, near Richmond, in Richmond, near Richmond, um, but I grew up in Roanoke County slash Roanoke City, which is its own complicated thing, um, and more recently moved to Rockbridge County, uh, which is near WNL and Virginia Military Institute and some other places, and um, is also nearish to um, the... Charlottesville stuff that went down a few summers ago and so there's um before before I left for New York City I was I was involved in um some local um queer and anti-racist um what am I thinking about one was a protest one was more like just a general like organizing thing um because of like we had KKK flyers dumped down across libraries and and churches and some other things like three months before I left for New York City. Um, and it probably wasn't until I was out of college. So I graduated in 2012 from Roanoke College. Um, and after I graduated and I'm you know working on getting the degree um, that I have now, um, that I really started getting involved with 
local in-person queer and trans groups and then more broadly social justice stuff um, as opposed to just Tumblr, right? Um, which itself was was pretty like a kick in the pants to, you know, to take like what you had learned online from this really weird, like I hope there are historians studying, studying Tumblr, um, this weird discourse echo chamber um, to the lived experiences of what was around me. Um, and so I had a pretty big chunk of a couple years where I was trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do. And I knew at that point that I was not cis. I knew that I was, are we okay? Okay. Um, I knew that there are parts of me that I couldn't just explain away. And I knew I wanted to do something, but being locked in this one particular geographic area and not being able to, I think, like get more exposure. It was difficult. It was easy to feel like nothing I did mattered. Um, and of course, now that I'm older, I'm sure everyone says it, you can look back and you can see, you know, you can see that the steps you took, the relationships you took, um, you can kind of see how that built you into the person you are. So before we got started, you mentioned wanting to talk more, uh, talk a fair amount about religion. Yeah. I'm thinking about your childhood before we yeah. move on to your adulthood. Yeah. And there are all sorts of questions I could ask about before, your childhood, yeah. but, but tell me more about religion. Like what, what did you, how were you drawn to religion as a child? What, as a child, what worked and what didn't, what was your process of disentangling from that enough that you could get into social justice Tumblr? Yeah. It, religion was something that was very painful and guilt-ridden for me growing up. I did it because I should have, because I was a good person and not like those other girls. Um, I wonder in retrospect how much of my, um, I say late coming to genders, though there's one single story we all take. But I wonder if it took me until I was 20 to verbalize, you know, I really don't think I'm a girl. How much of that was because of internalized misogyny from the church I had growing up. Um, it's hard to explain to folks who weren't raised in it because you see, like, I guess Sheldon Cooper's mom on Big Bang Theory, and you're like, oh, that's so funny, conservative evangelical Christians, that's hilarious. Um, and growing up in it is like growing up in the Matrix. I remember being taken um, by my youth group to the mall, and we were supposed to write down all the sinful things we saw. So, like, couples holding hands, a shop with um, now I know it's weed paraphernalia. I didn't know what it was at that time. You know, I just remember the youth group pastor pointed out and going like that, that is of the devil or something, um, which is hilarious until you remember that that was literally my only context for so many things. Um, they didn't even have to tell us sex was bad. It was just that boys and girls holding hands in public was sinful. Right. And how... How do you even begin not only to deal with the relationship with your, excuse me, with yourself and with others, but also with deity? If you've got someone who just is constantly staring at you and hating you the whole time. And it took probably, I was probably about 14. Um, and 
I guess this is the part where I decide I'm a librarian. So in true librarian fashion, it was a book that, that shocked me, that shocked me towards um, deconverting myself. Um, it was the Golden Compass and His Dark Material series by Philip Pullman, AKA the Atheist Narnia. Um, really good. Um, spoiler alert, in the last book, they kill God. Um, there's more to it than that, but essentially a sixth grader, that's, you know, I, I get this and I'm really struggling. And we had moved to our new town, the one that was um, lower on the socioeconomic ladder. Um, and a friend of mine who was Mormon, because there's also Mormons in my town, uh, tried to convert me to Mormonism, brought me to her grandmother's house and they started doing the, doing the thing. And I'm like, ah, oh, those Mormons, they're so, so, they're not like us evangelical Christians. I don't think, I don't think my church used the term evangelical, but looking back at it, that's, that's, that's my term. Um, and to deal with this, I started trying to argue with my friend and thinking about it. And I realized that I didn't, it started with not believing in Satan and then not believing in hell and then not believing in sin. And given the tool, the theological tools and my understanding at the time, once you get rid of those, the, the at least the faith I was raised in did not make sense, right? You can't have that particular branch of Baptist, that particular kind of Christianity, if you don't also have this inherently sinful creature who is constantly going against God's will. Um, also, quick diversion, um, we, we switched churches uh, to a Presbyterian church when we moved. Completely, like, not even, not even the same branch of Christianity. Um, and I, but I didn't realize that because the one of the first times I went into youth group at the new church, the person who led it said Jesus didn't like gay people. Jesus didn't want us to care too much about gay people. Also, Jesus was a Republican. Right? And I can look back on this now and go like, wow, that's really ridiculous. But at the time, I just remember feeling so cornered and upset and feeling like, well, my only other option is to be a hell-ridden atheist. So I tried that. I was very upset for a while. Um, and I just started reading. I started reading everything I could get my hands on. And my local library was my refuge. Um, I could go there and read whatever I wanted. And even though like I got talks about, oh, Harry Potter and witchcraft and all that, which is funny because now I'm a witch and it's not because of Harry Potter. Um, but, you know, I, I just read everything I could get my hands on and it was through books and then through like fan fiction online and then through Tumblr, you know, and this this whole con connection of media and how we interpret media and discovering, you know, slash fan fiction which is like boy, boy, or girl, girl, you know, homoerotic stuff or just homo kissing and stuff. It doesn't have to be erotic. Cause you know, I was 12 and I'm like, Oh, two boys kissing. That's so, woo. um, and then from there, like, Hey, there are people who are reimagining these stories with these characters as queer or these characters as trans. And I'm suddenly ingesting. I think of it as ingesting cause it's almost like a medicine, right? I'm, I'm taking in these narratives that I never would have, of thought to find anywhere. And I don't remember exactly when it happened, but at some point I had deconverted myself that I was enough to say that I'm not part of this faith anymore. And I'm also queer. 
you know, at that point I was like, okay, I'm gay. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm bisexual. And then I'm very complicated and also probably not a woman. It was an evolution. Um, so there was that kind of like thing. Um, back to the religious part though. I started reading everything I could get my hands on. So I read about Judaism and Islam. I read about Taoism. I have three copies of the Tao Te Ching um, back at my home in Virginia. I have a huge book collection I did not take with me to New York because there's no space. Um, I read about Buddhism. I found my way into paganism, which is where I currently hang out now um, and have been since uh, Spring Equinox 2007. Um, and I remember finding it and it being um, Margaret Adler's draw, uh, Drawing Down the Moon, 2007 edition, the one she, the last reprint she did before she died. Um, and I remember going like, I found it. I have found the religion. I have found something that makes sense to me. And one of the, one of the themes I kept running into was instead of deity being a singular dude, you know, you could, you could define deity in a variety of ways. And so like um, the, the primary Wiccan sources that I found, it was, you know, the God and the goddess, and they're both divine. And that's the thing. And that woman was not some like fallen creation, right? That they were both equally part. And then there was, you know, the whole sex thing, like eh, sex is pretty cool. You know, pagans are okay with sex. Um, that's got, that's got some other stuff I want to talk about maybe at a later point, if I remember, if it's germane to the conversation. Um, but just, just finding this completely different way of understanding and expressing religion was very appealing to me. Um, and so while I've hopped around in different religious, like, I guess, denominations inside paganism, like, I've considered myself that for, for more than a dozen years now. Um, and that's got like it's that's got its own there's its own shit with gender and transgender and, and greater pagandom and the pagan and polytheist communities and that that could be its own multi hour like roast complain fest of how it how it does and doesn't hold up the same shit that, you know, my Baptist church did. Um, it took a long a long while of bouncing around within paganism and then finally meeting pagans like in real life meeting queer people in real life that i could touch and they were like yes we too are queer and we exist off the internet we are not robots or you know like pedophiles who are going to come kill you which is what my mom oh, oh shit which is what you know people were always telling you about the internet um it was just so weird i remember the first time uh the first college i went to i i transferred halfway through um was, was Bryn Mawr, which was a woman's college. It's one of the seven sisters. And I went there for two years. Um, and I remember the first time, number one, I met a trans person who told me they were trans. who was still like one of my best friends to this day. And then another first time when I heard the term genderqueer. Also the first time I met my first pagan. A lot of things happened at college, as I'm sure they do for a lot of us. Um, and I remember sitting in a discussion circle at the time thinking I was cis and maybe I was cis like who knows how identity works but at the time like I was I was a cis queer person I identified more heavily as asexual at the time but romantic with a lot of people I just wanted to kiss folks and not deal with anything else and I remember sitting in the circle learning about trans stuff and this person said I'm trans 
And it's not trans is not short for transitioning. I am not transitioning into anything. I just am trans. And that at the time meant absolutely jack shit. Because it was like, oh, that's weird. Let me, you know, go on with my day. But when I look back at it now, it's it's one of those like that that's the important plot twist, right? That's the moment that the seed was planted that there's not just not just a, a, a label or a set of labels for me, but there's a different way you can like approach the entire concept of gender. Like you can ignore all the shit they told you growing up. And that there was like my series of like matrix type, like waking up and it was like gender. And then it was all oh, wait, social justice isn't bad. Like my church said it was. And like, maybe America's secretly awful. And I didn't realize, and maybe the repulse, you know, this is, that as I, as I think about it now at the ripe old age of 29, and I'm like, well, no shit. But it was just this series of like waking up into the world. And I can see gender and religion really playing that kind of pivotal role because of these things that, you know, were supposed to be so central to my identity, um, not just my identity, but like who I was as a human being and who I should be. If those were capable of, of being wrong, then everything else was wrong too. And it was like having a the quarter life crisis that just kind of kept going. Um, that I guess I got out of. I don't re- ever remember that crisis ending. That I look at it now and I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm pretty settled. You know, I, I think of myself as gender queer and non-binary, gender fluid. Gender's weird. I don't know question mark, but I'm I'm okay with that. You know, I, I think of myself pretty settled religiously. Um, but it it took a long time of trying to deal with the internalized misogyny and self-hate I was taught from my first church. And even though this is my interview and I know it's about me and my own perspective, I still feel like I need to do the asterisk, not all Christians, because there are so many amazing trans um, and non-binary Christians who are doing amazing work within their own faith to reclaim it from the shit. Um, there are people I've met who I've, I've met, like, you know how you always joke about ally cookies? I've met someone who I wanted to give a bakery to. Like this white cishet guy, right, who just, I don't know how he freaking got to Rockbridge County, but was just, like, he was Lutheran and he lived out, like, this, this man, this is who Jesus would want you to be. You know, you amplify the right voices, you use your privilege in the right way, you give a shit, you show up. And I'm just like, Thank you, because even if I personally can't reconcile the faith, knowing that there are people who are Christian who legitimately not just put up with my existence, but believe that I'm part of God's creation is just so important in healing. So like, not all Christians are awful. A lot of Christians don't know what the fucking Bible says. I went to school for religion. I was going to be a minister. I've read a lot of the Bible. Not a whole lot, because we're talking a bachelor's degree, right? So not like a huge. But I mean, there's enough that when I started reading from different perspectives from the church I grew up in, right? Because I had um, one of my professors who taught the Hebrew Bible was Jewish, and I had another Christian professor who did um, my Christian stuff. And then the second college I went to was a Lutheran school, and you know, um, had a lot of exposure to different fit, to different denominations and different ideas of how do you read the Bible. Um, and it's funny because I always say that, man, if I could be a Christian, because I don't feel like I can, 
but if I could be a Christian, I would be like an amazing like activist, minister, like punk rock, like Nadia Holtz Weber and her Church of All Sinners and Saints. You should Google it. She's great. She's Lutheran. Does a lot of just like break and fucking barriers the way I think Jesus would have actually wanted. Um, yeah. So, so I have a lot of love for the people in my life who are Christian, who, who I think are actively trying to make the world better for trans folks. Um, and my, my trans and queer friends who are able to still remain Christian. Um, I wasn't cause I'm a polytheist now. And I think you can reconcile a lot, but I, <laughs> I'm a polytheist now and it doesn't quite work, but I'm married to someone who's a Catholic and a witch. So sometimes, you know, it's, it's its own little, who knows? Religion's weird. Identity's weird. We don't know what we're doing. We're just making things up because words, who knows what words are. But, um, yeah, so we talked about that. I want to loop back around to gender and paganism. Um, and there's a lot of issues of reproducing the same shit out there in here, right? And so it's all like, oh, we're not going to be like those folks who, who hate women and hate all this other stuff. We're going to, we're going to fix it and make like, in, in the particular case of the first pagans I ever met, we're going to make a matriarchy and it's going to be great. And I'm like, great. I don't think I'm a woman. And they're like, sucks to be you then, I guess. And it was, it was very much like a distorted, not only view of like religion, but also as I came later to see feminism, um, I wasn't able, I, I didn't consider myself a feminist until after college because of my experience with the first folks that I met. And I had no, you know, it was like, man, if that's feminism, this whole social justice thing is bullshit, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, now I'm a social justice warrior. Whoops. Um, but there's, there's a lot of struggle in different pagan groups with where trans people should be and a lot of dominant narratives of basically TERFs um, controlling certain groups, particularly ones that were around more in the second wave feminism era, like 60s and 70s, when a lot of these groups got founded. And even though I'm not part of those groups and the people I'm in are not part of those groups, it's this whole like things are associated in the way people interact with each other. So even though I'm sitting over here with my you know devotional group to the goddess Bridget, who has saint stories about being queer and all this other great stuff. And we're doing, you know, really like punk rock stuff. You've got all this transphobia. I can't see my hands, but over here, you've got all this transphobia just trickling down and being repeated and being repeated. And it's like, you can't get away from it. And I'm like, oh, maybe I could go to an alternative religion and be away from all the shit. No, the shit there too. You, there's, you, you have to unpack the same boxes, even though they've got like, you know, like incense and shit on them, um, which is okay because I was able to find my way and I found other trans, pagan, autistic, disabled, fat, queer, et cetera, things that I am, et cetera, people that I am. Um, and I think that just finding each other like in person and finding the group of friends that I have was really, really vital for pulling me through a lot of that. I feel like we just went all over the place there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
Give me another prompt. Tell me something you think is interesting about me. I don't know. <laughs> you uh, mentioned uh, coming across all these books in your in right. your deconversion at a library. Mm-hmm. What was the library like? It's really funny because Rockbridge County um, has a lot of Confederate flags everywhere and is very much an example of, you know, the South in the worst parts of the South. But, and not all the librarians were good. Wait, like there were some legitimately awful people who work everywhere. But whoever was ordering and displaying books for Rockbridge County Public Library, like I found a book, The Joy of Sex, S-E-C-T-S, Sex, which... I, which I said, hey, mom, I'm reading The Joy of Sex. And I was really confused because I didn't get a game. And I, I remember pouring over this book, which went over not only, you know, um, quote, five major religions, so the Abrahamics and then um, um, Hinduism, Buddhism, but also a bunch of other stuff. Just like an 800-page book that, you know, a high schooler's going through for fun and, like, in spare time. Um just more books that were just available on the shelf for me to get to. Um, I, I skipped over the YA section when I was actually, sorry, the young adult section when I was actually old enough to be the target audience because YA books were full of sex and cursing and drugs. So I went straight to the Dragon Riders of Pern by Anne McCaffrey and guess what that's full of? Really badly written sex. <laughs> And really homophobic and some other shit now that I look back at it. But, you know, at the time, like, I have access to, you know, so I went from Harry Potter to adult fantasy. Adult fantasy erotica, as I found out later. Whoops. Um, But just knowing that I could go anywhere and read these books. And not only that, but I could have this private internal relationship with the book that was completely unmediated by anyone else. So, like, I knew what... I knew what my church thought about Harry Potter, right? And I had all that like in my head. Um, but I was reading through these other books, and it's it's not even necessarily like they were strictly trans or queer, but just reading all this sci-fi and fantasy, especially sci-fi that was like relentlessly hopeful and optimistic. None of that dystopia that everybody dies and it's awful shit, which is important. But but. but having this message over and over that another world is possible was like so incredibly like life-saving for me and being able to explore these different ideas of religion because like you go into fantasy and half of that's plagiarized from like robert graves the white goddess and which is fine because you have to plagiarize from somewhere um to just i think i'm pretty sure like my first example of a queer character must have been in sci-fi somewhere. I can't remember who or what it was, but I seem to remember it being in sci-fi because it's okay if the aliens kiss all their aliens. Um, and because it was part of these really strong genres um, and because it was, you know, I could go to the library, I could read whatever I wanted, it, it felt less shocking to me than I think it would have been if I hadn't been further along my deconversion process and hated all gay people. Like, I, it's, it's like deprogramming from, from, I mean, it's just, it's awful. Um, 
I remember just being really awful to the first gay person I met online because that's just what you did. And I was 11 and no one had had to sit down and tell me otherwise. Um, but it was through books and it was through fan fiction and the aforementioned slash fan fiction and, you know, the queer and the trans goggles that people put on and the alternate universes people make up where you've got trans Tony Stark, who's a million times more interesting than the cis asshole we have. Um, just knowing that you could play with those categories, I think is what primed me for later. Um, and then I had some of the most amazing children's librarians in my life. Um, in Roanoke, it was Lisa and Carl. I don't actually remember their last names. Um, who just put up with the fact that I wanted to read everything. And I came and I volunteered, like I willingly gave up my weekends to come shout books at the library. Um, and then at Rockbridge County, I think it was Linda, Linda maybe. Oh man, I don't know. But just people who were genuinely happy to see me and wanted me to read whatever I wanted. And when I got my library degree, and I, I was still I was still at home, so I was still going to Rockbridge County Public Library to do my research. And I remember um, this would have been 2013, 2014. Uh, the book Gracefully Grayson, which is about a trans girl, was number one on the fucking shelf in Rockbridge County. On the shelf. So is George by Alex, G Alex Gino. I have a list that I'm happy to provide anyone who wants. Um, but they were shelved in the children's section and not in the young adult section, which makes sense because we're talking about middle schoolers. But a lot of times you'll get trans stuff automatically sexualized and therefore put into the young adult section where, you know, Young adults don't want to read about sixth graders, and sixth graders aren't allowed in the young. That's this whole, whole bullshit. And there was just there was Beyond Magenta, and there was all this other LGBT stuff in the kid and the young adult section. And I'm like, someone here is making the decision to purchase these materials because it's not like the giant systems and you know in all the big cities where you know you've you've got millions and millions of books. This is a tiny, you know county system with like maybe six branches and so someone went out of their way to get queer books and put them on the shelf um, and I remember even as an adult going back there and thinking like that's really fucking powerful um, which kind of informs how I live my life now as a queer and trans librarian in New York is that you know maybe I'm not ever going to well, now I have, you know, now that I've done the training this morning, I can't say, you know, stand up in front of my colleagues, which I've already done. Um, you know, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm just like one voice in all of this, but knowing the impact that libraries had on me growing up and that books have had on me in my entire life and just fiction and stories and how we can imagine, because like I... Growing up the way I did and the church that I did and where that I did, you know, there's a lot of shit that I've had to unpack across the whole social justice spectrum. And as much as it was conversations with actual people who lived these experiences, excuse me, who either took the energy to be patient with me to explain why I was being a jackass or two, took the energy to tell me off. Like as, as much as that influenced at me, having a book put in your hand in a story that humans are already like, like we're the storytelling species. I don't know who said that, but having the story 
of another world and another way of understanding and interacting with people. Like our brains are primed for stories in a way that we're not primed necessarily for like nonfiction or quote real stuff. And so it's this subversive act of having queer stories that I just hand to people, right? Of having kids read Rick Riordan's Magnus Chase series. He's the guy who wrote Percy Jackson, which was the big thing after Harry Potter. And there's tons of books and he's famous and all your kids are reading it. But in his, in his Norse series, spoiler alert, stop reading if you haven't read it. The main character not only is confirmed bisexual, but his love interest, this is on children's bookshelves, okay, not in the YA section. His love interest is gender fluid. And he kisses this love interest as a boy and as a girl. And they have this, and it's a, it's a little like, oh, this is a little one-on-one clunky. But you know, 12-year-olds are supposed to be fucking reading it. That's fine. And just thinking about, like, if I had had that in Harry Potter, instead of whatever shit she's pulling with Dumbledore now, right? If I had had just real calm, like, and not just that, but, you know, like, this is um, an LGBT person who's homeless, who's had a lot of shit, who's still dealing with a lot of shit. And then pointing at mythology and going like, these are really super queer and trans gods, which side note really makes it funny in an awful way. But funny when I think of all of the, the super racist, fascist, Nazi, Asatruar and people involved in Norse paganism, and not all pagans, but you know, that subgroup. And I'm looking at your fucking mythology and I'm like, no, they're all trans. All of the gods are trans. Odin's trans, Loki's trans, Thor wore a dress. I'm sorry, you can't get away from it. But like these stories, you know, made, made appropriate for kids. Okay. Um, this is what's being published by a major person, right? And, and, and being able to talk to a child, like, oh, what did you think about the book? What did you think of Alex? Like, I didn't understand about being a boy and a girl. Or someone else looking at me and going, oh, I know who you are. Because that one person on that Netflix show that got canceled is also like you. You know, this is the why I'm involved with Netflix. Um, I don't even remember where I was going with this. Just that stories are important. And it's really scary to think of things in a historical context with violence and all this, like, this. It's so easy to turn on the news and feel super depressed about life. And I think in some ways it's important that we have reality checks, especially those of us who hold no privilege in certain areas. Um, we were talking this morning at the training. You know, are you going to be a person in the library who throws a brick? Like, you know, referencing the brick at Stonewall. The brick. Um, are you going to be the person who helps, you know, shatter things and, and makes things better for trans folks? And one of the things I brought up is that it doesn't have to be a big brick, right? Because it's, it's a big monster that we're facing, right? This fascism, capitalism, whateverism, kyriarchy all these big things, you know, it's, it's big and it's multi-headed and it's like that Hydra thing and its heads keep coming up and you're like, bullshit. But it's okay for whatever actions you take to be small. Um, and I think about that really sappy story about all the starfish up on the beach, right? You're walking on the beach, you know, that I'm mean to explain it to the person listening, right? So you're walking on a beach and, and there's all these starfish that came in with the last tide and they're dying. 
and and there's this this one kid who's chucking them back in the sea one at a time and then this asshole guy comes up and is all like hey you can't save them all um and the point is like no you can't right in many ways we're losing you know we're losing on a lot of fronts it's scary like i don't like you know, there are often times I don't necessarily like being alive in this particular world. Um, but, you know, I was a starfish once. And I think most of us were starfish once. And somebody at some point kept us going. And I have to think that it's important to do things like this interview, that it's important to care about which books I put up on the shelves, that it's important to take time to talk to kids about my they, them, but in that it's important to care enough to keep trying. Um, because I not, I'm not physically capable of going to marches. I cry when people are even mildly upset at me because I'm a Pisces. That's what I do. You know, it's, there's so much that I can't do, but you know, my brick doesn't have to be big. And I just hope that I can help in whatever ways I can. And that, you know, maybe my brick helps someone else build their foundation. And that's, that's good. That's important. That's holy work here that we're doing. Um, yeah. I think I'm done with that part. I might have more to say about it, but I'm, I'm, I have feelings. Ask me something else. Tell me about the political education you got on Templar. It's so funny. Um, so this is part of a longer story. I went to a woman's college um, that I, I transferred away from because there was hazing. Um, long story there. Um, and because of my experiences there and also my experiences of how I grew up, I was very staunchly anti-feminist and anti-social justice and you know i i'm sure the person i was then would look at who i am now and go like oh my god and it's you know we we, we change hopefully we are not the same people we were as, as teenagers um and this goes back to fandom and interacting with media but i was on tumblr around the same time that welcome to night vale the podcast was really popular and that's got a canonically queer couple as like the main characters and it's you know it's weird stuff um and there was a lot of discourse going around at the time about how some certain things regarding race were being handled like the fact that these two um characters who were not like nobody mentioned like they're just characters they're voices and yet here's you know our one person's always being portrayed as this you know white blue-eyed sweater vest person when you know it's supposedly set in like the mojave desert right and I remember getting in, not personally, like I wasn't typing, but I was reading these giant um, discussions about why this is problematic and what does it mean for people of color and fandom and how does that connect to these greater like societal issues. Um, and I think I was just at the right, I was at the right point in my life to be open and receptive to this. And I was also in a medium that I trusted um, which really ironically now is Tumblr because we have all these, for, for people who don't know, right? Tumblr has this um, perhaps not undeserved reputation of being a very toxic medium now, um, both for 
like there being like literal Nazis on Tumblr who've been protected while sex workers have been having their accounts deleted to, you know, the toxic shit of um, a particular strain of social justice thought and, and praxis, which is very purity based, um, where if you fuck up, like you're canceled, you're done, right? And it's, there's, there's no nuance for people learning or people making mistakes or, you know, there's, there's shit that goes down there. There's just something that's another entire interview. Um, but at that time in 2012-ish, um, the discourse I saw around this particular fandom that I really liked was, was and, and the individuals I interacted with, um, was enough to get was enough to give me um, I'm like okay maybe feminism isn't that bad after all um, because once I discovered like the that the feminism that informed transphobic goddess pagan shit was not the same feminism that these people were talking about which was more intersectional which was third or I guess maybe fourth way like I don't I don't know any of the theory um, and then the social justice, like how it had been presented to me, you know, as a conservative Christian and then realizing what social justice actually was and then looking at like, oh, I'm not like those other queer people because I'm respect, you know, respectability politics that, you know, I kind of got born into and then realizing, but I am like them. And the ways that I'm not like them, like how much of myself have I, have I, um, I can't think of a good term. Cause like I want to say neutered, but that's like a problem. Like how much of myself have I forcibly kept in a box to maintain this respectability, right? Because I wanted to be the right kind of person. Um, and Tumblr was like part, just like one, one part of being exposed to so much all at once. And so I kind of like, I guess I like radicalized myself on Tumblr, which is kind of funny in retrospect. Um, and so I, I remember my senior year of college um, when I did my thesis on gender and paganism, which is a shitty thesis. Please don't go looking for it. It was like, I did it like a month before it was due. Don't, don't, I was, no, don't do that. Um, but I remember um, my major advisor going, oh, oh, are you a feminist? And I'm going like, no, I'm not that radical. I think everyone should be equal. <laughs> Um, and then within the space of a year being like, yes, let's burn everything down and then roast marshmallows on the ashes, you know, it's happened very quickly. Um, and so I think I'm the only person who's thankful for social justice discourse on Tumblr. Um, and a lot of it also had to do with the friends that I had at the time, the social circles I had. There was a particular um, pagan forum, the Cauldron, which I think is still around and has been for like 20 years, which is forever on the Internet. Um, and I had friends there who knew me from age 19 to the person I am now and got to see my very public blunders in social justice and feminism going from actively like making fun of it to who I am today, which is figuring out that, you know, I'm trans and I'm queer and living in New York City and, and feeling so radically different about the world. Um, so yeah, the internet's a wild place. It's really weird and it's hard to explain if you weren't like it, 
you know, and that exact cultural point on this one website following the right people. Um, but the internet's also where I found out that genderqueer stuff existed. I think the first term I found was um, neutral, neutral. It looks like neutral with O-I-S at the end. I don't know. Um, you just don't, I, I would say today, maybe a gender. I was like, oh, that's me. Go on with your day. Um, and then I found, I think, the now defunct genderqueer encyclopedia, um, or at least I can't find it anymore now, that just started listing all of these things that I had always been like, oh, I can't be, you know, either I can't be trans or I can't be that queer because X, Y, Z. I'm like, oh, is it because sometimes you occasionally feel like the gender that you're assigned at birth? Well, you might be a demigirl. And I'm like, quit giving me language for my experiences, you know, but once you have the language to talk about, you know, things fall apart. And I couldn't have done, like, what would it have been 10 years earlier? Where would I have gone in Southwest Virginia, you know, knowing the people I did, constrained by the social whatever I had? Like, Tumblr is what, you know, is what I had. And hopefully the next generation has better things. And we continue to have better things. I think I do want to talk a little bit more about um, gender and religion, just because that is super important to me. Um, I talked a little bit before about stories being important, right? And about humans being a storytelling species. And this thing that we're doing right now is that I'm telling the story of my life. Um, you know, I'm not making anything up, but I'm presenting it in a way that hopefully has some coherent narrative. Um, and the more that I would delve into religion and mythology and to the sacred stories that people held dear, you know, and the more that I thought about instead of, instead of religion as I had been brought up being treated as this, not just a historical document, because historians will tell you like how how complicated it is to determine truth and different, you know, it's very wibbly wobbly. But instead of treating religion as being this like absolute like historical, like this is this very rigid thing, and being able to embrace it as something that okay, well maybe it's not literally true, but literally true is boring. Who cares about the fundamental nature of reality? We've got people starving here, so. Does my religion nourish me, right? Do I look at my deities and see my gender reflected, right? Do I see stories about transness being some important part of, like, of the fabric of nature, the fabric of these stories? Um, and being able to come to an understanding of my identity as a religious person, like sort of the same way I did as, as a trans person, which is to say like being comfortable with very, very, um, very loose boundaries between labels and very personal understandings and things that change from day to day and a focus more on praxis and like lived experience rather than trying to um, adhere to some orthodoxy, orthodoxy being um, correct, like belief rather than correct action. 
um, it kind of informed each other. So like I, as I grew as a pagan, uh, as I grew as what I'm hoping one day to be like a priest, um, I also was able to get deeper and deeper into my gender and just being really comfortable with, as Jadzia Dak says of DS9, with being uncomfortable. You just don't always know what that is. And that's really scary for a lot of people. It's scary for the people living it. Like I, like I've been asked before by cis people to talk about gender. And I'm like, look, I'm probably as confused as you are. Like I'm dead honest. There are days I don't know who or what I am. And at the training today, you know, we were trying to figure out how do you take something that's so intensely personal and at the same time so intensely wrapped up into this giant historical context of like privilege and oppression and violence and and people, you know, being champions of their own destiny anyway to spit in the face of these assholes holding them down. And how do you distill that into something workable in the workplace or something that you can like because we can't all go around and spend three hours talking about ourselves and we have a conversation right we've got things to do um, I'm not even sure where I was going on with this ramble just that <sighs> things are complicated and it's okay for things to be complicated and things being complicated scares a lot of people because we like to have nice neat answers because I think that's what the world around us asks for right it asks for very clear-cut definitions and separations between each other and between ourselves. And we're kind of asked to like compartmentalize ourselves. But the things that my gender and my religion and some other parts of myself have asked are instead to show up as your self, as your authentic self, if you can do it. And just, you know, I'm here. I guess I'm queer. I'm really tired. I need some coffee. But, you know, I'm here. And that's, that itself is like a radical thing. So I think that's good. Okay. You're smiling, nodding. Do I get an A plus for the interview? Always. <laughs> but it's impossible to fail. Yes. You just have to say something interesting okay. to you. Am I still interesting? Are you interested? I am still very interested, yes. You're doing beautifully. Excellent. Excellent. What else do you want to know? What else should I say? Tell me about moving to New York. What brought you here? Um, okay. So I met my spouse in Las Vegas at a library conference because someone decided to do a library conference in Las Vegas on the strip in June. Awful, terrible life choice. Um, it's just really, really freaking funny. See if all these, all these librarians descending upon the tables cause they can count cards real well. Um, and I met my spouse through Twitter while we were, you know, we were both tweeting on the, on the hashtags for all that, um, who was open about being genderqueer, who had another gendered name, who had six million buttons and now owns a button machine. There's a button machine in our, our tiny one bedroom. We have, we have space of a button machine because I love my spouse. I do. Um, and just meeting this person and not only that, but, but they are fat. I am fat. Like, like fat, fat. Actually fat. Um, and all of the shit that gets dealt in with that. Which, side note, it's really hard to be trans and fat. 
because you can't find anything that fucking fits you. And because fat tends to deposit itself around certain, you know, depending on which level of hormones you have, which is determined by other things, which is, you know, it's really hard. It's harder, I think, to pass as a fat trans person and whether or not that matters. It's, it's hard. I'm flapping my hands angrily at the, not the camera, the microphone. Um, and I, I, at that point, and then I guess like trigger warning, I'm talking about diet stuff. Okay. Um, you can tell like, like, I'm just going to talk about all the gender and all the internalized misogynistic and the violence I had about myself, but no, it's diets. I'm going to trigger warning for, um, I was on a diet at the time and the person who I would end up marrying turned to me and said, I don't want to hear it like more politely, but like, I have a history of disordered eating is what they said to me. And this is not good for me to hear. And I do not want to hear it. I too, I did not realize at the time, also have a history of disordered eating. <laughs> I was like, whoa, you can be trans and fat and not a, what is this shit, right? Um, we had, oh God, I really hope, this, this is something I don't mind sharing. I'm embarrassed about it, but it's not, it's not something I'm being cagey about, like for example, where I work. Um, we had a one night stand which is hilarious because neither of us are the kind of people to do that. I was off the heels of a relationship. I had sworn off love forever. My heart was broken. It was awful. Um, and we had a one night stand in Vegas, which failed ultimately because we got married. But I was just totally entranced with this person who was just taking up space unapologetically. They were a Leo. I don't know if we're following along at home or astrology folks, but very much I am the center of attention. I know what I'm doing and you're going to move. And I'm a Pisces and I cry all the time. It's fundamentally very different people. But, but that happened. And we had a long distance relationship. Um, and I had another relationship at the same time. It was, it was very complicated. There was some, some weird stuff from our partners. And anyway, um, but we both broke up with our, and this, this was, I should say, we, it was like a poly thing going on. So we weren't cheating on anybody. Um, although I, people live your own relationships and I'm not casting judgment. I'm just trying to explain, oh God, I hope my mom isn't listening to this. Ugh. Um, but, you know, we are, our respective partners went their own ways around the same time. And we reconnected through a social justice group. Um, about librarians and what group um well the american library association because i mean like that's it but they, they had a um oh man what was it called like a social justice collaboratorium as i think the term and so so bright bright i know i know um but but my my person i am now married to who at the time i think i called my girlfriend i don't know it's confusing um Went. And so, so we reconnected um, a year after we had met up in Vegas. And we, we'd been like talking, like, we'd been friends, but no, whatever. Um, but we reconnected for this social justice thing. Um, and by the end of the weekend, I was like, I love you. I'm ready to move in and have like, you know, six cats with you. Um, she doesn't work because they're asthmatic and we can't have cats. But, you know, um, things happened very quickly. Um, they got, I'm probably mixing my timeline up a little bit, but they got a job at um in new york city and moved out so we were not we were not physically together right i was in virginia they were in michigan we met every few months 
We were very sad. We role-played a lot of sad trans people. Um, and they got a job in New York City. I had just finished my library degree. I could not get a job in Virginia because it was either we want a part-time job um, where you need a master's degree or we need you to be director of like the entire world. And there's literally nothing in between. Um, and I'm like, well, you know, let me let me apply to New York City and see what happens. They're not going to call me back. I'm fresh out of grad school. And so they called me back. And I said, sure. And then I, I moved here April 2016. Um, and it's been rough. New York kind of kicks my butt a lot of the time. It's difficult growing up as sheltered as I did. It's also difficult being disabled and being autistic because this is a very mean city. And there's a lot of people who are very loud and I don't understand buses still. But at the same time, coming here from where I was and realizing no one gives a shit about me is both terrifying but liberating, right? Like I can dress as butch as I want. I can color my hair if I want. I can, you know, I have access to these really strong unions and I remember, like, um, right after the election, um, 2016, um, we were really scared. And we're still really scared. Like, I think every trans person has just been continually terrified, probably forever, but especially since the election. Um, and we, we have been engaged at that point, but we decided to go get a legal courthouse wedding, like, immediately, like, as soon as we could. Because um, we were both really scared. Coming from where we were, from Michigan and Virginia, and we still hadn't figured out what New York, like how fucking important the protections are in New York City and New York State. I mean, they could still be better, but I mean, just comparatively speaking, like we went out and got married because we were terrified of what might happen, right? Um, and I like New York better now like actively like slash am loving the city. But at the time I felt really trapped because I'm like, okay, well, we can't fucking move. We cannot go anywhere else except San Francisco, which is more expensive than this fucking place. Um, like, cause you know, what are we going to do? What am I going to do? You know, go back to Virginia where there's like, what am I going to do? Um, so I feel like, I don't feel trapped in New York anymore. Because I want to be here. And because like I have so many opportunities to make a difference here. And I can do things and get away with things and be trans in a way I don't think I could be at home. Um, not easily, at least. Um, and I have the privilege of making that choice, right? I've got money and I've got education and I'm white. And at the very least, I can pass for a cis lesbian. You know, there's all this stuff that, that I... That is making me able to make that decision, even though I say that I feel trapped. Um, and I think that New York has fundamentally changed me, but not, not like in a bad way. I think it's helped polish some of the crap off. I think it's honed, you know, you get this idea of working with marble and you can kind of see stuff under it. I don't know if that makes me super vain for comparing myself to a work of art. Um, yeah. 
any other questions? I remember being at a training with you in uh, February, mm -hmm. February 20th, yeah. uh, about Stonewall 50, and you came out there. Yep. And I think you announced that you had just come out at work. Yep. Uh, do you want to talk about what that process has been like? Yeah. You know? um, it's now, what, May 9th? It is so. May 9th, so I've been out for three months and a couple of days. Um, I transferred from one location to another, and I hadn't made the decision if I was going to be out about my gender at this new place. Um, my spouse was. Um, it had been, um, but I wasn't sure. But um, probably the second day I showed up with my they, them pen, and I took one of my colleagues aside. I was like, hey, so I'm trans. These are my pronouns. Will you help me with that? And they're like, yeah, totally. She's been great. And I had overall positive experiences. But I also have not, because I can pass as cis, and because it's not like, because I can deal with the discomfort of someone, especially um, the public misgendering me, um, I can let things slide, which I, I don't, I don't mean that in the sense of like some moral superiority of like, oh, I don't get upset, but like, you know, just the way my gender is configured is like, okay, that's an acceptable, you know, shit I have to go through. Um, because of that, I can stealth, even though I'm technically out at work, um, which is its own thing I'm trying to figure out. Like, how how much do I need to remind people, like, hey, no, I'm actually, I'm actually trans, I'm not a lady. You know, um, how much in your face do I have to be about it? How much am I policing myself? That's something we talked about the training, too, is like, you know, we talk about living in, you know, police state and, and certain things, but like, how much self-censorship do we put up with do we do to ourselves to to avoid potential pain and violence right um and that's been something i've been trying to figure out the last few months um the kids have been great the kids are just like yeah whatever um lots of questions of of you know what does it mean when i say i'm not a miss i get a lot of people stare at me I get a lot of people, though, who understand when I'm talking about, yeah, like that one day at a time person. Yeah, I've seen the TV. Why are you tacked? This isn't a big deal. I'm like, oh, excuse me. Um, I've had some kids make some insensitive comments, um, and I've taken them aside. And without fail, every single child who has said anything to me was because they were repeating what an adult had said to them. Not just around them, to them. Um, I remember this one kid... Um, came in and oh I can't even remember what it was it was some I think it was that meme of like oh did you assume my gender and you know making fun of social justice people um and he came in and he was, he was making fun of that back and forth and so I took him aside and I was trying to explain like you know this this is why what you're saying is a problem he didn't realize it and he came back like 15 minutes later and he said I want to ask something and I said okay he's like what happens if I'm a trans girl and he I just, I was so fucking proud of him. He was eight at the time, right? Eight years old. And here I was, this big, butch, fat, white lady, not even from New York City, working where I was. Somehow, I was able to give him enough of what he needed that he felt safe enough that he could ask me that. And I told him, you know, I have no idea 
what might happen. Like things are scary. And he was, he was the first child I told that I was trans. And he was like, Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I said, I don't know, but it's, I'm trans and I'm here and there are other people who are trans too. And it's okay. It's going to be okay. You're okay. And if you have any questions, I'm right here. And I've done that with more kids at the new place where I work too. Um, kids who have questions, kids who, you know, get brushed off because of, you know, quote, behavioral problems or, you know, kids who don't know what the word fag means. Not even like, like don't even know it refers to gay people, right? Because they hear it on Fortnite or whatever. Whatever those kids are playing these days, shaking my cane at them. Um, and I'm sitting down and I'm having these really open, honest conversations with these tweens, right? Age 12 years old. Um, it's a little young for a tween, but whatever. Um, I'm having these really open conversations about like, this is where this word comes from. This is why it's a slur. Like, you know, I'm, you know, I usually say I'm gay if they're really young because like, that's what they're aware of. Although I did have a girl look at me and go like, you said you like ladies too. That means you're bisexual. Don't you know anything? (laughs) I was like, you're right. That is what that means. I'm so proud. Um, Or I'll explain like, you know, that, that hurts me. And this is why it hurts me. And then be like, oh, well, I mean, I've got a cousin who is also like you, who is also gay. And this is just what I've heard about them or whatever. Um, and without fail, it's it's always been something that we can talk about and reconcile. Um, and even if it's only like, oh, you know, Sage doesn't like to hear this, so don't say that word around. Wait till they're gone till you say it. You know, okay, I'll, I'll take it. That's progress. Um, it's it's something that I I think a lot about the responsibility of being the adult I didn't have growing up, right? And modeling, not just not just being kind to each other, but like being out and queer and trans and just existing. And just the fact that I'm here and I'm displaying myself, doing completely innocuous, boring work things, but there. And the kids who can see me and see an example of someone who's alive, right? Seeing someone who cares about them someone who gives a shit um, has been really rewarding, really like holy in the sense of like, I feel very much called to the work that I do. Um, Not because I'm special, but because this is what we should be doing for each other. Right. And I feel like working with the kids has been in many ways It's funny because I'm looping back around to the, the, the faith I say I don't have anymore. You want to talk about salvation and making up for the shit that you've done in the past. And you want to talk about it on, on, a, on a societal level and showing up for children in a way that I wasn't. And being able to have made as many changes as I have to become a better person, to dig myself out of this, this shit. Right, to be able to reclaim myself and my body and my identity and my faith. Like that's that's really important stuff. 
That's really important stuff. You know, and maybe I will never be able to physically march. I went to one march after Prop 8 passed in 2008 in Philly. And that was my one march, and I may never get to march again. You know, maybe I'll never march. Maybe, you know, there's a lot of things I can't do. But I can show up, and I can take this, this space, and I can make space for other people. And that's pretty cool. So that's what I'm doing in New York City, is I'm trying to make space. And, yeah, I think that's about it. Thank you, Sage. You're welcome. This was excellent. <sighs> okay. I think that's it. Yeah.